This morning we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some. Well, there's only two left back there. But they're there if you need them to follow along. Let's start off with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the time we've had in song and just getting kind of straightened out and focused on you for your word. And we pray that you help us to receive your word with gladness. Is That's the only way it changes us, is if we're prepared to receive it. We thank you for these two chapters, what a blessing they are. As Nehemiah begins to minister to the heart of the people, not just their physical safety and security, but gets them to a place where they can weep and mourn and also be restored. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, next Sunday, after second service, we'll have a short meeting. Uh, well, we hope it's short. We'll see how short it is for the camp helpers. Those of you who signed up to help with camp, you'll have your assignments and counselors and food and all those things that we had designated for specific groups. We'll break up and talk about those things, and then we'll be able to go home for the day. So hopefully 15, 20 minutes tops, but be prepared for that uh, next Sunday after second service. Nehemiah chapter 7 is a lot of names, and so we'll be going over that quickly, and we'll spend most of this morning in chapter 8. It's about weeping. Um, it's about crying, actually. Um, went to bed kind of late last night, woke up around 4 a.m. One of those days, tried to go back to sleep, and laid there and rolled around a little bit. And I know that when I physically get tired, I get a little weepy up here, so I'm going to do my best not to do that, but it is appropriate for chapter 8. Different reasons we cry. Different reasons God gave us that purpose and uh, that uh, release, and it is that. Um, and it's hard to embrace something like that because, well, there's a reason they call it ugly crying, you know. You don't look the greatest in the middle of your blubbering, you know. Uh, it's a very humbling and very vulnerable place to be. And, um, but Jesus gave us an example of that. Now, he's perfect, God come in the flesh, he's actually at Lazarus' funeral, and he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows that. And yet the first thing he does when he comes on the scene is, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible, and Jesus wept. Now, why would you weep knowing that you have such great hope lying ahead in about 15 minutes, your friend's going to be alive and everybody's going to be celebrating his resurrection? And yet he takes the time to do that as an example for us. It's an appropriate response for the loss or death of a loved one, or for any kind of loss in our lives. And it's very necessary. Jesus didn't probably need to be baptized either, but instead told his cousin John, please baptize me. This has to happen. It has to be done this way. Now, he didn't have to uh, repent for the remission of sins. He didn't need to do any of that. And yet decided to be baptized as an example for us, as we all um, need to get to that place of repentance in our lives and turn back towards God. So that is our beginning here. In chapter 8, I normally focus on verse 8, which is where we get our thrust of our ministry or focus of our ministry here at Calvary Chapel and all Calvary chapels is we read the Word of God, we give a sense of the meaning and the understanding. We think that's very important for the spiritual health of anybody, of any church. And so we stick to that. We're very close to that. We feel like that's our calling. That's what we do. We're teaching ministry. Um, but that isn't really the focus today. The focus today of chapter 8 will be on the weeping and the crying that takes place. Um, so let's begin. Verse 1, chapter 7. Then it was, when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, this is Nehemiah speaking, when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani 
and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among them, among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now, Nehemiah has been very upfront about his ministry, what he's called there to do. He's not an Ezra. He's not a priest. He's there to make sure that the physical safety of the nation of Israel is taken care of so that they can worship God without fear. They had built the temple. The walls and the gates were not built yet, and so it was very difficult for them to show up at church and begin to worship without watching your back because, you know, if your enemies are coming in. So Nehemiah shows up and says, I can do that. That's what God's called me here to do, and he built these walls. And so when he's finished doing this, he understands that the walls and the gates weren't the focus, but the safety of the people were the focus. He was doing this for them. It wasn't accomplishment. He didn't blast his name all over the side of it. That is Nehemiah, you know. Look at that. Put a plaque there for me kind of thing. He knew that the purpose of this wall and these gates were so that the people then could draw closer to God. So safety first, but then definitely minister to their spiritual needs. We laugh or I joke around about Nehemiah being the guy that pulls everybody else's beard out, you know, when they're sinning or not doing what they're supposed to be doing for God and how rough and tumble he was. But you're going to see through Nehemiah and through chapter 8 here, one of the coolest spiritual victories written in the Bible. And that is the stopping of the destruction of the innocents. That is Satan's goal in this world is to destroy innocence. That's what has made most of us adults the way we are. As over 51 years... <laughs> and some of you a lot longer than 51 years, Satan has been chipping away at our innocence, trying to break us down, make us hard, and succeeded in many ways. Some of us toughened up for the battle. Some of us um, prepared for it in that sense, and we got a thicker skin and a, hopefully kept a soft heart, which I think Nehemiah has. But only because Christ came into our lives do we have any kind of softness inside of us at all. Otherwise, we would still be and be, be getting worse, harder and harder as we walked in this world, and we'll talk about that. Nehemiah has a spiritual victory in chapter 8 through the weeping that takes place, the stopping of the destruction of the innocents. He says about these gates in verses 3 and 4, I don't want you to open them unless they're full light. Now, we learned, you know, in hot, the sun is hot, which means it's very bright, not just uh, dawn, but everything's visible. And we talked about that last week, how we have to be very careful about what we let into our lives through the gates of our hearts. We have walls. They're built up. We're not walled off from the world, but we do have gates. But we also control what comes into our hearts and what comes into our minds. And we'll be careful about that as far as sin goes. So he says, before you open the gates, we're not in a hurry here. Make sure they stay shut until it's fully light. We want to have full visibility of what we're allowing into the city. If, if there's any kind of pressure for you to open up beforehand, there's a reason for that. It's because they don't want to be in the full light. They want to get in when it's a little bit dark. And you have to be careful about that. So he says, don't be in a hurry. Wait till it's fully light out before you let anybody into these gates. And we need to do the same for our lives. We had a moment, I was I hesitated there because I didn't know if I wanted to share the story or not, but hey, 
how it goes. You're in my family. We, we, we get used in that story. And I'm very proud of the, how it turned out. So it's a good thing. But uh, we were having the children's ministry, uh, those in the children's ministry and serving in that area. We had a, a meeting here and, and uh, on, on a, a Friday night. Was it Friday night? Friday night. Um, and we had our two youngest ones being watched by Evangeline and Hunter. And that was a blessing so that we could come and minister to the adults that were here. And um, they had decided to go to a movie, and we searched out the movie to make sure it was okay and looked decent enough. And they went to this movie while we were gone, but 20 minutes into it, Hunter and Evangeline felt compelled. We need to leave. We took them out. Not appropriate. Now, we had researched it and looked into it, but we weren't in full light is the idea. Uh, we had m- maybe been surprised. And, and to be honest, there probably wasn't full disclosure from the movie either what we were about to let our kids see. The good news is we had spiritually discerning older children or older adults in the room that were smart enough to say, we need to get out of here and took the kids to safety so that we guard We shut that gate. Basically they did that. So I'm proud of that. I'm not happy with the fact that we didn't have full light. And I, so I take a lesson from this here that investigate further, make sure there's full light on the thing. We thought we had done what we needed to do, but apparently we'd missed something. That to be said, it happens, and we dealt with it appropriately, and it went, it went very well. You know, and we all learned a lesson from it. It was very good. It wasn't a failure at all. We had, we had really done our due diligence, we thought. Nehemiah is giving them permission to leave the gate shut, and I think we need that as adults. It's okay to leave your walls up. It's okay to keep the doors shut because whatever you're, whatever's trying to push its way into your life shouldn't be pushy to begin with. <laughs> And if it is, and they like to do it in the dark, there's a reason, like I said, they want to be in the dark. So let's let the light shine is the idea. Also, set a guard. Don't become complacent in the fact that you found security. We have a a little electric fence around our garden. You know, at first we thought we'd be all right. We planned, I told you the orchard story, and the very night we didn't get the barriers up, the deer stripped, you know, two or three of these trees to nothing. In the first night, I mean, come on, give us a week, you know, before you come in, you little rats. And so they were there, and they love deer. Don't get me wrong, just don't like I'm eating my trees kind of thing. So well, the garden was the same way. We, we got it going, and all of a sudden we found little rabbit nibblings. And there's a lot of grass out there that can nibble. They don't need to be nibbling our garden. Okay, So I put this little electric fence around the bottom, you know, about six inches off the ground, and it's worked very well. No, no problem so far. Well, I took it down to mow. Uh, and get it low and get the weeds out. And I didn't put it back up again. And thankfully, over the first two nights, I didn't get it put back up. Nothing happened. But it was a very good lesson for me in the sense that you're getting complacent. You don't think those rabbits are waiting for you to fall asleep so that they can come out and eat everything that your wife is working so hard to produce out there? Get the fence back up, you know? And I can do that spiritually. I can find safety for so long that I become complacent in my guard. We be very careful about that, spiritually speaking. Keep our guard up. Put that fence back up. There was a reason you put the fence up, and that threat has not left. It just hasn't attacked in a long time. And so when you drop that fence, you can plan on it. It's coming. That attack will come. So whatever safeguards you put in your life spiritually to keep you from falling or going into sin that you haven't been attacked in such a long time, you think you're safe, put those back up again. Be on your guard. Let things into your gate. Let people into your life. There's nothing wrong with that, but make sure it's in full light, full disclosure. And so Nehemiah, that's his final say on the law. 
and are on the on the wall. Excuse me. Now, the city was large and spacious, for the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart. Underline that God put this on His heart. This isn't just an administrative move or a wise thing to do. He really felt like God put this on his heart to do. So he gathered the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. I want to know who's from where. So I found the register of the genealogy of those who'd come up in the first return and found written in it. Now, these are the people from Zerubbabel, and I am not going to read through chapter 7, and you know why. Um, Because it's torturous to hear me try to uh, pronounce these names. But these are the people from Zerubbabel. And he divides them up into different groups. And you can read about those different groups if you want to and study those. It ends up in verse 66 being 42,360 people plus 7,337 servants that they brought with them. Um, And then also uh, 245 men and women singers. They brought those guys also. And so they were all documented and put in the right place. Now, there is a situation where they have, whereas they were trying to genealogize, which is not a word, but it is today, these people, categorize them, and they could, no DNA back then, obviously, or, or testing anyway. So how do we know? Well, my great-great-grandma said that I was one-fourth Cherokee Indian. Well, okay. Everybody says that kind of thing, you know. Uh, yeah, it'd be all nice if we could all say we were in the, you know, whatever. We got, I got a little bit of Indian blood in me. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, we can't take your word for it, is the idea. We need a DNA test. We need to get something done. So here's what they say, back up to verse 61. Um, But they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel, these people here. Um, And then then it says what we had to do with them was to make them wait until we, it says verse uh, 64, these sought their listings among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. That's kind of a harsh word to use, but we don't know if you're of the line of Aaron or not. We can't use you. Um, we have to wait until that's confirmed. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So they're going to pray about it, basically, to find out where you're from and where you belong. Okay, that's fair. We couldn't worry about their feelings. It was more important that they were worried about being obedient to God. And if these people were the priests and they truly loved God and truly had that respect for his word, they would understand why they're being excluded because, of course, you need to make sure that we're of the right tribe because nobody else could do this job but the people that God assigned to this. And since you don't know and you're going off of my word and that's not enough, that's okay. And we need to be okay with that sometimes. We had this children's ministry meeting, and that's one of the things we brought up. There's a lot of different churches that do it a lot of different ways. Of course they do. A lot of people, in fact, we're encouraged to do background checks and fingerprinting, and we don't do that here. And I believe we have a stronger system, stronger than that. A lot of these background checks and fingerprinting have come to play in churches because they're so desperate for children's ministry people that they're taking people that have only come to their church for two or three weeks and putting them in with the kids. So, of course, you need to do a background check and fingerprinting. You have no idea who those people are. But is that the best way? We require you to be here for one year before you're allowed in that children's ministry, before we even start thinking about putting you as a helper in the ministry. And some people don't like that either. But I can't worry about their feelings. Because if they love the kids like they say they love the kids, 
And they understand that what we're doing is for security and the safety of these very children that we're trying to minister to. Of course, you would wait a year before going to the children's ministry. Now, if you're trying to push your way through the gate in the dawn with a little bit of dust without having full disclosure and full light on you, that causes me to pause and wonder, what is your motive here? So we have safeguards in place, and more than that, not just those things. Those are the things that I put out there. Don't be offended like these Levites that may or may not be Levites. Don't be offended that you've been excluded. We just need to consult with the Lord a little bit before we start doing this, and that's a, a normal thing, um, and it's a, it's a proper thing. So chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, so anywhere from four to five hours before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Nehemiah knows that the walls are up and now it's time. We need to minister to these people's hearts. They're in a perfect place. What's going to happen as they read through this law is they're going to hear God firsthand tell them what he expected of them. And they're not going to need to do anything else. By conviction, they're going to realize the difference between their behavior and God's expectation. And it's going to cause them to weep and to mourn, which is very important. Nehemiah has to do this. Ezra has to do this. This is everything. To stop the destruction of the innocents. And I'll keep hitting on that so we understand this. When this weeping is about to take place, when it actually comes about in the person's life, as the conviction of the Holy Spirit is so powerful upon the people that they begin to weep and cry over their sin, destruction has saw, stopped and now restoration can begin. In Corinthians, they had a problem there. A very spirit-filled church moved in all the gifts of the Spirit, but they tolerated sin. They didn't have a problem with sin. They didn't call sin out like it was. They had a, no issues with it. And Paul had to write them a letter and say, you've got a guy there that's married to his mom. That's not okay. And you need to have him leave if he's not going to repent. And he didn't, and he left. The next letter he writes in Corinthians 2 is, I want you to restore such a one, because they turned him over for the destruction of his flesh. They didn't forget him or throw him to hell or whatever. They wanted the destruction of his flesh so that when he returned, they could, they could restore him lest he be eaten up with too much sorrow, Paul says. We, we don't want that. The crying that takes place here in chapter 8 is the beginning of conviction and a brokenness to where God can step in and restore them. You cannot have that restoration until you have that brokenness, until you have that weeping, until you have that time. Now, that's not the only reason we weep. We don't just weep over our sin. We don't just weep over our, uh, a death of a loved one or a sickness or some sort of hardship in our life. We can also weep as we're just moved by the Spirit, which is what's going to take place here. This is a moving of the Holy Spirit by the reading of the Word of God. And they just begin to weep over this. There's other reasons. I was, sorry, I was, we had that children's ministry dinner, and, uh, and uh, we, Jenny and I got up here to say something, and she started, Jenny started off and began to talk about Mick and Carolyn Miller, who have been with us since day one here at Calvary Chapel, since we first started our Bible study. 
and uh, Rod and, and Lori as well with uh, Tanner, and, and we had three of our kids at the time. Um, and they would, and she was just sharing this, that the beginning of the children's ministry here was Mick and Carolyn sacrificing their time to worship and going into the back room and taking care of um, Anna, uh, uh, JC, Seth, and Tanner, basically, and that, our drummer. And, and um, that was interesting that they were in the meeting last night as children's ministry helpers, you know, in many ways. And so they were back there doing that. And, and Jenny began to get emotional about that. Now, we don't know exactly why, except that it was a, so she's talking about a work of the Holy Spirit. It's hard not to be get emotional about God doing such a wonderful thing. Remembering back 20, many years ago, when this whole church began and how that started and to think about that and where we're sitting in front of 45 children's ministry people, you know, wow, what a, what a move, you know, and you get emotional about that and begin to weep. That's appropriate. And sometimes you'll catch me up here blubbering a little bit, you know, um, because I believe I'm being moved by the Spirit. It's, you're talking about something that's powerful that may happen today. I don't think it's still possible. Um, but when you begin to talk about God's Word and the work that He's done or the work that He's doing, it's hard not to begin to weep about how beautiful and wonderful He is and, and all. Um, it's appropriate. So that being said, um, verse 4, So Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him, at his right hand, stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, um, Arijah, Hilkiah, and um, Messiah. And, and at his left was Padiah, Mishael, um, Mal, Malchid, oh boy, and Hashem, and the rest of the gang. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book, in the sight of all the people, and he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, um, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. So a beautiful time here. Nehemiah steps aside from building the wall and says, Ezra, it's time for you to get up. And it's time for us to start worshiping God and getting restored as a nation. The safety's been done. My job is over. My role is over. Ezra, take the book and go, go. And I guarantee you, Nehemiah was in the front row receiving everything Ezra had to say. Now, he's on a platform that says he's, he's above everybody. And, of course, it's not for the purpose of being better than everybody else, but so that they can hear and so that they can see, so understand. After he gets done reading and blessing all the people, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Raising your hands during worship is appropriate. Now, Sometimes it can feel out of place. I, I grew up as a Lutheran kid, um, and and in our church, not that all Lutheran churches are the same, but in our first Lutheran church in Sioux City, Iowa, um, you don't you don't raise your hands. I mean, you just you just didn't. Not because we're just kind of stoic, bunch of Norwegians, you know, and, uh, and you know, we just, beautiful, loved God, and we're singing. Honestly, they they really worked there. But if someone was to get in the middle of the crowd and go, ah, oh, you know, start doing this at the Lutheran church. Honestly, although there's nothing wrong with raising your hands, we would have all stopped singing and looked at the, who's who's that? You know, who brought the visitor or whatever kind of thing. And it would take our eyes off of God and onto that purpose. So when it's a corporate worship time, it's appropriate to raise your hands here at Calvary Chapel. Please feel free. Um, we do that here. And so we, we lean towards that direction. Um, 
don't be distracted by it. It's totally normal. It's totally scriptural, biblical. It's it's all about that. But when I find myself as a you know Pentecostal Calvary Chapel guy, you know, or whatever, um, in a group that doesn't do that. I don't take it upon myself to teach everybody that this is how spiritual people worship, man. Get up. Come on. You all these stoic Lutherans. No. You're in a corporate sense. You do not want to take the glory away from God or the attention off of God. You put your hands down. You worship with your hands down. It's appropriate. Okay. So that's that's a, just a good rule of thumb for us as worshipers. By yourself in the car, I mean, keep your hands on the wheel, but, you know, uh, maybe one hand out the window or something if you want to do that. Do whatever you want to do. But when it comes to corporate worship, you really want to make sure that um, it's not a distraction away from God is all. But I, I'm not telling you not to raise your hands here. I really prefer that. I think that's important. I think that's an expression of your heart. Some people don't feel comfortable doing that. I know I didn't at first. Um, I remember the first time I raised my hands to worship. Um, everybody in the tent it was doing it. Um, this is in the military, and all the military, all these guys are, it was Pentecostal, it's not a Lutheran service, you know, and there they all were doing their thing, and I grabbed my buddy's hand who led me to the Lord, and I put his hand up with mine, we're doing this together, man, you brought me here, <laughs> we're going down together here, and then we both broke out of our mold that day, you know, and it was, it was great, and I haven't been the same since, I still do one hand, I still don't do a double-hander yet, I still do one hand, I don't know. Here's what it says, and here's what's happening here. As they lift their hands, as they worship God, and they put their face down. It's in Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. These people are hungry. They're desperate for help, for restoration. They know their condition. They know where they stand, but they're desperate. And as God's word is read, it begins. The conversation begins with God. The relationship with God begins. And they begin to feel this natural response. I'm in the presence of the living God. He's letting me be in his presence. I'm hearing his word for the first time. The walls are up. The gates are up. Nehemiah is sitting beside me. Ezra's reading. We're all together. There is something to be excited about here. We're not alienated from God anymore. We're back in the land. He is gracious and merciful to have brought us from a place in Babylon, where we belonged because of our rebellion, and he's brought us to a place of worship just because he loves us. And so they began to say, as they hear the word of God, amen, we agree, we agree. And that's where God works. God can't work unless you're in agreement with his word, unless you start with the brokenness, with the the ground and the soil of your heart all turned up. He can't work with that until you're ready to receive his word. And once you do and you're hungry for it, my grandma used to say, uh, we'd always compliment her, you know, oh, grandma, oh, these rolls, they're amazing. And, uh, and she'd always say, hunger's a good sauce. You know, as a, that was her good Swedish way of saying, oh, shucks, you know, kind of thing. Hunger makes it, you're so hungry, you'd eat a rock right now is the idea, you know. You don't, you don't even know what good food is, but thank you is what she, um, when a person is hungry, the word of God is tasty. They received it. They're changed by it. They're excited. They're hungry for it. When a soul is not hungry for the word of God, the word of God becomes dry and flavorless. We need to spice it up. Need to add a little salt to that. That's a little, mm, you know. That's a soul that isn't hungry. That's a soul that could take it or leave it kind of thing. Wait for something better to come along. 
And as pastors or teachers, you have to be very careful about that because if you get a whole crowd of people telling you the Word of God is dry, irrelevant, doesn't very tasty, not spicy enough for us, the temptation is to go into these series modes, you know. We're going to do this series, or we're going to do that series, and we're going to get these things, and we're going to... And, and you can see that all over the world as churches are beginning to put, you know, titillating verses, you know, up there and, and, and titles of the, you know, news story after news story of these pastors just trying to do shock and awe to get people to show up at their church. And uh, well, that's because they don't feel the Word of God is valuable enough on its own. It's a very well-balanced diet. From Genesis to Revelation is what we're supposed to eat. Um, we've been, we, <laughs> Jenny's been growing turnips, and I've been watching her from the window grow turnips, and good job out there weeding, you know. Um, but we were going to can the turnips, and I love turnips. I mean, turnips are great. Not, not turnips, beets. Beets. Oh, I love beets. I don't know why I love beets. I just love beets. Maybe it's because I'm an adult now and I like beets, but all oh, those beets are fantastic. And so I see them. And they're nice size beets. You know, we didn't get them giant and woody and nasty. They're just the right size beets. And the, as far as I'm concerned, you just you chop off the greens, you toss them, and you eat that beet, and you get it all ready to go. No, 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 no. I come into this canning operation where she's got child labor in full force, and the, <laughs> and the kids are there chopping up all the greens. I said, what are you doing with all the greens? Oh, you're going to add that. You can do this and that. I'm like, for me... I was all about the big, I want the big juicy beet is what I want. I want you to steam it, get it cooked. I want to eat that. I just love it. You know, the greens, those are going to be bitter and kind of nasty and all that. Already I've taken what God had made perfect and cut it in half and took away what I didn't want to eat and only kept the good part. And if I'm not careful, I'll keep peeling away till I get to just the heart of the beet, you know, the heart of the beet. That's the best part of the beet. And be throwing away 90% of the beet just so I can have that heart, you know. We do that with the Word of God sometimes. It's all of it. That's kind of bitter. Eat it. You know, you need it. I just like the heart of the beat. And we know what the high points are, don't we? Samson and, you know, Samson and Deli- or Sam- yeah, Samson and Deli- Goliath and David and, and the Gospels and Easter and Christmas and, and Revelation. Oh, that's really cool in the way horse comes down. You know, it, it, we like those things, but everything. We got to eat it all to have that well-balanced diet. And it's, it is tasty. It's good. And it gets spicy sometimes, too. You just read along. You don't have to have a marriage series or a child-rearing series or whatever. I guarantee you, you go from Genesis to Revelation, you'll hit on marriage. You'll hit on children. You'll hit on being a better husband, being a better wife, being a better uh, parent, whatever. You, being a better employee, being a better friend. All these things will come into play, and you'll get them right when he wants you to have them. And then he'll give you the other stuff, too, that you need that you didn't think you needed. All of it, the whole counsel of God. They get it and they say amen. So verse 8, um, it says this. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave a sense of the meaning, they gave a sense, and helped them to understand the reading. Very important. Read the word of God, give the sense of it, and then help them to understand it. They didn't want to leave them with just proclaiming the word of God over them, and hoping somehow through osmosis it just went, they took the time to explain it to him because God wants us to know his word, to, not only to know it, but to understand it. To memorize God's word is wonderful. Hide it in your heart, or it's in your, actually in your head. We want to get to that place through understanding that it is hidden in your heart. 
See, sometimes we, we mistake those two. We can memorize John 3.16, but it's only in our head. Because we don't fully understand it, it hasn't gotten into our hearts yet. So you really can't apply it. There's no way to use that information to make wisdom. Wisdom is how to apply God's word. Um, otherwise, it's, it's data. And so instead of just leaving them with data, he says, I want you to know this and to understand this. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27, Paul writes at the end of his ministry to the elders of the church, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, not just the high points. I've given you the whole beat, <laughs> greens to root, whatever that is, because then there's a little tail over here. You got to eat that too, I guess. And a little dirt, leave the dirt on, it's good for you, little microbes there or whatever. Probably not. Um, he gave him the whole counsel of God. And he says, it's interesting how he puts it, I am innocent of the blood of all men. In other words, I wouldn't be innocent of the blood of all men if I hadn't given them the whole counsel of God, which I take very seriously. I think it's very important um, to teach through Scripture um, and to get all of it, except for the names. Maybe I should repent of that and read all the names to you, but um, that's the point. Read through it. Luke 4, 4. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Nehemiah knows that their safety isn't the only thing that matters. He knows they have to have the word of God, because that's what's going to help them to live. Without the word of God, you can't live. You can feed yourself, you can survive, you can sustain yourself physically, but spiritually, you're dying, and you need to have that. And he understood that. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now, he's not telling them that their response isn't appropriate, that they need to stop, stop crying about it. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to bring restoration. In the book of Revelation, we love that verse at funerals, and he's going to wipe away every tear. Oh, I mean, we can hardly wait, because the implication is life is sorrowful and difficult and hard, and eventually, now that they're dead and, and with God, they never have to worry about all that garbage ever again. He wipes away every tear. Very true. Very true. Um, that's not what he's saying here, necessarily. He is wiping away their tears. He's trying to bring them to restoration, lest they be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The sorrow is important. The dealing with it is important. The release, the stress release, the sorrow, it's all important. But right now, in the state of, of, of where the people were, you got to picture yourself in Israel they are broken down walls, walking around a destroyed city, stepping over all the rubble of their former lives, looking at the destruction around them. And a lot of people are like that. They're, they're, they're living a life of destruction, and, and, and they don't know where to start. The walls are all broken down. My life is in ruins, and I'm stepping. I'm just making it day by day. I just got to get to work. And so they step over the rubble of their life, and they keep just kind of muddling along is what they're trying to do. And Nehemiah says, no, we need to clear that rubble, and we need to build those walls, and now it's time for that restoration to begin, your relationship with God to begin again. And so I want you to do that. I want you to stop crying now, and I want you to begin to celebrate what God's doing with you. The destruction of the innocents. We, uh, throughout the week, um, I take time and, and have time with God where we just, I'm quiet, and I let him unravel everything, all the things I've seen and heard and experiences, whether that was the children's ministry meeting or whether that was things I'd 
seen in a video or something or things I had heard from other people and just try to, why, why all of that this week kind of thing? There's always a reason for it. And this week, was, there was a lot that kind of went on. And so I take those times, and that's probably the first 30 to 45 minutes of my study time, is I'm just letting him unravel it all, you know. Um, one of the videos I saw was um, that um, goes along with the destruction of innocence is there was this little 9, 10-year-old boy, and somebody was, some older boys were videotaping him, and they were trying to help him, not help him, they were trying to get him to describe what it meant to fornicate. Okay, and I'm using those words because we've got younger ears in the crowd here. But um, can you show us what it looks like and all that? And they're on the street and they're filming him and they're just laughing, watching this little nine or 10 year old boy act out fornication on the street like that. And they're laughing. It just, it just, well, this is an appropriate response. And I don't mean for it to be like that, but that's so be it. It breaks your heart to see that innocence being destroyed right in front of you real time. And it's so far away, you can't do anything about it. You can't smack the older kids in the back of the head. What are you thinking? You know, it, it just happened. And this kid, you could see these little beautiful, innocent eyes just being destroyed right there. You know, um, saw another one. One of our brothers from Africa had posted it. And I know, I know better than to watch those things anyway, but um, he was broken about it too. But they had taken a, there were two little kids, three and four years old. I know you want to hear this, but you have to, I guess, because part of the it, it's appropriate to weep. Um, they had bound them by their hands with ropes. These little kids had stripped them to nothing, and I couldn't tell their age really because they were so emaciated. And he had hung them up on hooks like this, naked, just spinning there like a piece of meat. And he had taken a switch, and he was just switching them. And they were twisted and writhing, trying to get away from the switch. And someone's videotaping this. And there's a street behind him with people walking by while he's doing all this in the middle of the street. And I see these two little kids twisting and turning. And <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it but sit there and say, God, help. Help. And what does he see every day? It's three kids I described to you out of the millions that are going on in this world. What don't we see? What is happening? Satan wants to destroy innocence. Just kill it. Strip it, harden everybody, make them hate, and and so on. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, I got to deal with this. What have I just watched? What am I witnessing? You know, what do I do about it? And you, you got to ask God, and you got to pray your way through all this garbage, you know. And you got to discern, and 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 it's appropriate to weep over these things. It helps. Because he weeps over these things, and you join him in this. And yeah, there's things we can do, but that's not that wasn't the point. The point is these people are weeping and mourning over their sin and their alienation from God that they caused, and they know it. And we need to let that let God by His Holy Spirit take that time with us to unravel these things. We have to let Him do that, or we won't be able to function. I see. If you ever go to Casey's at five o'clock at night on a Friday. Go there sometime. Go to any cases at 5 o'clock, and I don't care where you stand, just stand there. You watch a stream of men, sometimes women, but for the most part I see men, wore out, dead to the world, walk back to the cooler, grab their 12-pack of beer. And I'm not knocking it. Don't misunderstand me. It's not about alcohol today. It's about them trying to cope and deal with what they've had this week. And they set it on there, and they pay for it, they walk out the door, and they're just getting ready for Monday. And they have done this for who knows how long, 20, 30, 40 years. And that's, they, through this self-medication, 
They're not having to deal with everything they need to deal with. They need to deal with it. We are a society that is bent on distraction and uh, self-medicating and whatever we can do to not deal with that. I can't deal with it is what people say. Boy, it's wine time. It's five o'clock somewhere. You know, that is the joke that we say to each other, but there's a real problem. We're not having this time that we need to undo. And I feel for these guys. They're coming in covered with grease. They've been under a car without any AC, you know, in the middle of August. I understand where they're coming from. I'm not knocking them for it. I, don't, I just know that that is all they have to do. That's, that's how. And they don't realize it, but they think they're benefiting everybody around them. And, you know, I'm a happy drunk. But the family's suffering. Um, everybody suffers because they don't take the time because it is super terrifying to think about just being quiet without the TV on in the background or self-medicating or whatever and have that alone time with my mind and to let God do what he needs to do and to confront these things and to let God do what he does. He's a healer. He's our counselor. He's our physician. He wants to get in there and he wants to work on these things and he understands enough all people to know where you are, what you need to deal with. You got to dive in and it's going to take some weeping sometimes to unravel all that stuff. I just hope someone hears that today and does it and changes their mode of whatever they do to cope or to ignore or try to hide or stay away from what really has to happen. And that's the destruction of your innocence. Satan's not done destroying you. He started when you were a little kid, and he's still doing it to you adults today, hurting you and driving you places you don't need to go. And you need to let him touch you and work on you. And you got to feel it. you got to go through it. And I'm not meant to be all psychology and touchy-feely this morning. You know that's not me. I just know that's how it works. He cannot restore and undo all the damage that was done before Christ Unless I let him do and undo all the damage that was done before Christ. I've got to let him in and do that. And I have to be aware, and I have to be sober, and i got to feel it all. So the people are in that place right now. They're not stepping over the rubble of their lives anymore. The walls are built. They're restored. And they're letting God minister to them. Changes my view of Nehemiah. Tough guy, but he does it on purpose to get him to this place to where God can touch him and minister to him. They got to get here, and I can't get them here unless the walls are built, unless the gates are hung, unless they know they're safe. And now they can let down their guard and they can let God minister to them. This is how I'm going to restore my nation, Nehemiah says. It's a beautiful thing that he does here. Now, They want them all to stop. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Now you got to understand that is not what these guys think about forever. The Levites, the priests all think it's my job to make everybody miserable at church. If they don't leave miserable, I haven't done my job. That's what they did. You know, you need a sacrifice. You know, you've done this wrong. You know, you need to pass your sins on constant, constant, constant. This is the first time they actually had permission and maybe been enlightened to the fact that, no, there's now, now after that, it's time for 
getting really close to God and being restored and healed and forgiven. There's forgiveness. What a relief. So they get to do the fun part of the job now. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Priests and Levites gathered Ezra and the scribe in order to be still. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Everybody's going to have a great day. Everybody, no matter what they came in contact with when the reading of the Word of God took place, they're all going to go home and say, this is amazing. Oh, I just the burden I was carrying. I didn't realize how heavy it was, how dark it was, how clouded my life was. I can see now. I can feel it again. And the kids see it too. All those kids that are living under the cloud of their parents' misery or forced to live under the cloud of their parents' misery because the parents have decided to receive God's word and his forgiveness. The cloud has been lifted and they now get some sunshine in their life. What a joy. Beautiful. Now you know why I say chapter 8 is the greatest spiritual victory in the Bible. The whole nation is rejoicing over their forgiveness. Now, on the second day, that's day one, then day two, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or tents. So like, what else should we do? And they're looking, it says we're supposed to tent camp. And you know the kids, you know what the kids are like? You're kidding me. Church? We don't have to sit there and watch you guys moan and cry. We get to go tent camping for church? Yep, day two. We go church tent camping. This is amazing. We go this. And they're supposed to go for, the, in the seventh month, they're supposed to go for a week, and they, that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm trees, branches of leafy trees to make booths. That is as it's written. You're, it's prescribed. You have to go and camp. Now, they're not going to camp outside. They're going to camp in their homes or on top of their roofs. And it's kind of a relief because some people are like, I don't, I don't know if I can get all the way out there. No, you just go to your backyard and set up your tent. We're going to unplug here, basically. Now, they didn't have all the things we have to unplug from. But, you know, we're unplugging from daily routine and daily life. And we're going to spend seven days camping with the kids and talking about the Lord with them. It's a joy, joyful time, a beautiful time. This is day two. Sweet. Then the people went out and brought them, these branches, and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. Everybody's there. And there is something about that to be said. When everybody's taking a break, you don't feel guilty about taking a break. You know? When everybody stopped working, they're all sitting down in the shade. You're like, okay, I can sit down in the shade and actually relax in the shade. I don't feel like I should be up doing something. Everybody's doing it. No business. We're all just tent camping. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel, they had not done so. Never took advantage of it. I'm prescribing you, God says, I don't know, seven days of doing nothing but camping with your family. And nobody took him up on it. How much did they miss? Now, he writes about that uh, in Leviticus 23, 42 through 44. I'm running along, so I'm not going to read it. But that's where he gives them this opportunity. And here's what he says about it, though. I guess I have to read it. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths and brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
I want you to declare to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. I want you to do this so your kids can learn. I want them to learn about this. I want you to tell them, talk about a beautiful object lesson, you know? Are we out here camping, Dad? What's going on out here? Let me tell you, son, here's what happened. As they're roasting, probably not hot dogs, Jewish, you know, uh, beef dogs or something like that. And they're out there roasting these dogs, these beef dogs or whatever. And they're telling them, there we were in Egypt. And the angel of death came through. And they released us from 400 years. We got to wander around. And we lived in these kind of things. For 40 years, we were doing that. Then he brought us to this promised land, the place we're sitting right now. And his eyes on this city. And the kids are just going, you know, eating their corn on the cob or whatever and listening to dad. What a beautiful time. Please take that under advisement as parents. Take that time with those kids. And take these times that God prescribes for you to do that. It says in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your houses, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Don't skip the opportunities to talk about the Lord just in your everyday, in your everyday stuff. And that's where we close today. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, There was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. What a beautiful start to their spiritual restoration as a a nation. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, um, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us and your desire for us to draw closer to you. You want us to understand it. And and we want to understand it. We want to be set free. We want to walk with you. We want to weep. We want to cry when it's appropriate. We want to let you into our lives and to unwind us and to fix things and to heal us. And um, so this morning we make ourselves available to you, whatever you want to do. They were moved by the word of your God, by the, by your word, God to, and it caused them to weep by your spirit. And um, we want to make those times available also for you to do whatever you need to do. So Lord, help us to take the time to do that, um, to let you do what you want to do in our lives through your word. And Bless these folks as they go today in Jesus name. Amen.